This is Spark, a podcast about the practices and habits that spark deeper love. Today we are joined by Apricot Irving. Apricot is the author of The Gospel of Trees, a lyrical meditation on ecology, loss and the tangled history of missions in Haiti. She reported on post-earthquake recovery efforts in the north of Haiti for the radio program This American Life and grew up as a missionary in Haiti herself. She's taught literature and writing in many contexts and countries and has spent a great deal of time interviewing and listening to the stories of others. As a friend, I've been able to hear her talk about many of these experiences and have watched her live into both the sorrow and joy of life in ways that are always inspiring. Today, she joins us to talk about the practice of lament. The reason that I thought it'd be really good to have you along is just after listening to the This American Life episode where you were in Haiti after the first earthquake and then talking to you as you were writing your memoir and then reading your memoir about growing up as a missionary in Haiti and then now in the work that you do as a storyteller and collecting stories from many different populations of people and really creating space to attune to people's grief and sorrow and you've been learning this practice of lament for years and so just thought I'd ask you a few questions about it as we try and think about this practice for ourselves so what's made it so important to you the practice of attuning to the grief and sorrow of yourself and others Hmm. I love that question I pulled out all sorts of favorite books to help draw into this conversation, ones that I've turned to over the years and that I've learned from. And there's one that I I copied into a journal um, from a really wise book and it says, sorrow is a sustained note in the song of being alive. Mm. And I think like, why is it important to me? Because it was the thing I had to move through to make sense of my own story. Um, we met each other when I was quite early in the process of writing the memoir mm-hmm. and I didn't know how to begin we had left Haiti when I was 15 or was at that point 25 in the 10 years in between my family almost never spoke of the years that we had spent in Haiti. Mm-hmm. And, and so much of my childhood was spent there and shaped by that place. Mm-hmm. Um, but in the final six months that we lived in Haiti, there was this traumatic event. We were told that the missionary compound was going to be burned to the ground by nightfall, the hospital and all the homes. And we evacuated and, and it didn't end up happening, but it was, this awakening into a realization that we were not as beloved by the people that we lived among as we imagined ourselves to be. Mm -hmm. We were not the white saviors that we had hoped and imagined, that actually there was a great deal of resentment and grief and anger for all kinds of reasons. And so the silencing of all of that for 10 years and our inability to talk about as a family, not just you know, the political upheaval of Haiti, but the upheavals within my parents' marriage, the upheavals in, within my relationship with my father, 
um, the upheavals within the relationship of the missionary compound to the larger sending organization, all of that just got locked in a room. And I knew when I entered the graduate program in nonfiction writing at Portland State University that I needed to face it. And I didn't know how. And I asked my parents if we'd had any letters or photos or newsletters from those years. And dad took me out to the barn and brought all these boxes out. And I was newly married and just spread them out over the floor of the living room when my husband would leave for work. And I was all alone with just these boxes. And they were full of so much. That just brought up so much emotion. And then my great good fortune was that I was also um, able to, at the same time that I was excavating these family documents, set up an independent study with a brilliant, generous friend to this day, Haitian American professor of French and Francophone literature and film at Portland State University. And so I was doing an independent study with her and she was giving me books to read by Haitian authors about Haitian history. And honestly, the weight of colonization and what it destroyed and what we've called the new world was so heavy that I just felt like I would swim all day alone to this sorrow. And and figuring out what to do with that was, was the huge question. Like I, I felt wrecked by that question. How do I hold this grief? Not just my own family's grief, but this larger grief of what was done in the name of Christendom to people and land that, that was so devastating that to this day, 500 years later, the scars are, are ineradicable on the land. So why was it important? <laughs> How do I live with this? How do I not be destroyed by it? How do I come up from that like drowning underwater place? And going back to Haiti was a great piece of that because I realized that in my mind, the like locked away part of our story that we hadn't told, that we didn't know how to tell, Grief was at the close to the surface, you know? We knew, I remembered that much. But then I'd shove it away again. And when I went back to Haiti for the first time as an adult at 26, my husband said, he'd never been to Haiti, he said, you know, you always talk about the hard things about Haiti, but you smile more here than wow. you do in the States. You laugh more here. You, you're like, you're alive here in the way that you aren't in Oregon, I needed to help myself heal and hold the sorrow, hold it alongside the joy, hold it along in community with others. So it wasn't the solitary pursuit, but in conversation with others, like my friend Cecile, still to this day, is this solace and space of connection because we can talk through the hardest things. What's happening in Haiti right now? We've been meeting over Zoom, since July, since the assassination of the president and every week and inviting this other dear friend who's a poet, Sonia, the three of us are working on a podcast. So I hope we'll have that to share at some point because yes. it's magnificent to be able to be in conversation with people who are unafraid mm. of the most raw, painful, almost unbearable truths about sorrow and grief and lament that together 
and then move through that to joy, to that reaffirmation of the ingenuity and vibrancy and aliveness that comes when people together move through the hardest things into spaces that also include joy and laughter and um, protest and like so, so much lives on the other side of that doorway that is sorrow. So it almost feels like it was, it was there and you had maybe an invitation or a choice or that there was, that it was, it was there. And then there was this intention to move towards it that happened through being in your program and coming upon these writings and encountering this professor who's Haitian and so mm-hmm. it's it's really the sense that it was there you'd pushed it away but it was almost as though you'd reached the point where there was no push there was no capacity in you anymore I've never understood how to make sense of being a missionary kid in Haiti and sorrow and the weight of it and my own distress stacked against the distress of others and that terrible destructive thing we can do where we compare sorrows to others and then Mm. say, well, this one doesn't count because the other one is greater. Like what a, what a foolish thing we do to ourselves Mm. in the name of, I don't know, guilt or some kind of false bravery I don't know what it is that motivates that but it's it's a barrier to love and connection it really is and Mm -hmm. I think about what that means then for how you when you do show up and you ask these questions of people when you're interviewing them and it feels like you do such a a winsome job of creating space for complexity like even in you talking about um, lament you're talking about joy and moving through and sharing stories and connection and I feel like when you do this work with others it's the same like you you almost have an expectation of complexity and so it's not like you just expect the story to come at you in a particular kind of way and so how would you say that creating space for lament and for sorrow and for grief in like being present with somebody else when they're ter- telling their story, like what, how have you seen the importance of that or mm-hmm. what it means to somebody when you don't shy away or withdraw or quickly divert away from a deep sorrow and grief? Well, I think coming home to our own sorrow feels like a really important piece. Um, I actually taught a class this it was really fun. It was the first time I tried to articulate how to practice the art of listening, how empathy unlocks stories, what I called the class. And I was realizing and trying to talk these strangers through the process of how when we attune to someone else's story, we're trying to bring really like to be very... Neurological, we're bringing the mirror neurons in each of our brains into a pattern of of mirroring each other so that what you feel, I am feeling in myself a mirror of what you are feeling. What is happening in my body is happening in your body and I'm with you, I'm near you. I'm not feeling, I mean, I I don't know how we would distinguish between 
I'm not necessarily entering into your story and taking on your emotions. I'm feeling my own, but I'm looking for that moment within my own life when I know that thing that you're describing. And I can truly it. empathy. Right. And I can mm. sit with that space within myself. And I have already. It's not the first time I'm sitting with this within myself. Like I promise you, I've done so much journaling and weeping and therapy and release catharsis so that I know I've attuned internally within myself. I've aligned myself before I go into the interview so that then I can align to what exists within you, knowing that the complexity within me, which is irreducible, is equal to the complexity within you, which is also irreducible. And stories are more, far more interesting when they're complex. So for me as a writer, like the vivid detail and the uniqueness of each person's sorrow and joy and hope and disappointment and determination and despair, that the shape of that for each individual person is so beautiful and so distinct. And it's such a privilege to be in the company of someone who's making sense of that and, and telling you and trusting you with that. Like what a delight and an honor to be in the presence of that. And it sounds like that really deep listening is a part of being able to hold the grief and sorrow. And it's it comes from the listening to our own grief and sorrow mm -hmm. and then yeah. with it with the capacity that kind of grows within us yes. when we encounter the other mm -hmm. then we find that we do have that capacity to listen in or to attune or to be because it's a very different thing sorry interrupting <laughs> it's a very different thing to listen to someone else and be thinking all the time oh what should I do how do I fix this is something required of me what do you need me to be um like blah, that throws them off yes yes it it does that throws and, yes and it's demeaning to that person's autonomy and dignity because really when we sit across from another human ideally I think it's with this sense of you exist your stories are alive within you you hold all of your contradictions just as I hold all of mine and when we walk away from this moment of connection you will still be you and I will still be me and how will you carry yourself forward now will I carry myself forward maybe I will have learned often I feel like this happens I will have learned something from you in the way that you carry your questions your choices and I get to learn from that but I don't take on your choices I don't take on your contradictions I need to resolve them for you that's yours thinking too about you as a missionary or within the frame of Christianity like there must it not it doesn't have to be that there's a fear or a hesitation around letting people lament or letting people have grief or letting mm -hmm. ourselves have it but and it but, may not be the only thing that does keep us from doing this practice or creating a habit where we do give ourselves space to feel grief and sadness not only of our own but the world around us we're bombarded by it it feels like oh, constantly yeah. and so we could just name a few of those fears or hesitations that 
that you maybe have of your own or you understood as a missionary or? Well, definitely. Like the, the moment when we were evacuated from the compound and then came back three days later and, and everything was fine. The, the Haitian pastor of the Limbe Baptist Church had stood up and, and really spoken boldly on our behalf and things had settled down politically and everything was fine but we did not talk about what we had just gone through mm. and there was this and i've and i've interviewed hundreds of people since that time to yeah. ask them all how they remember it and what how they experienced it and kind of universally are all of us remember that we did not know how to talk about the grief that had opened up in us. And we felt like, or many of us felt like there was maybe a burden or expectation that we interpreted as coming from Christianity that we, you know, there's that verse I was thinking about this morning, consider it all joy, my brethren, when you face trials and tribulations of many kinds. And there's truth in that, but, as I now understand, that joy is only on the other side of the sorrow, of the uncertainty, of the lament, of the, the honest wrestling with all that is unknown in that moment. If you just skip to, now I have to be cheerful, I have to pretend like I'm joyful, even though it felt like the world just fell out from under me, that makes for really destructive practices that I can testify to. I, I participated in and, and did a lot of that, of feeling like I couldn't be with that grief. I, I needed to be joyful. I needed to be an example. I needed to be a witness. I needed to, you know, that the, the God that people were supposed to see in me was somehow this like relentlessly cheerful God. Like what even? Hello? Wasn't that, wasn't there some nickname like, Jesus, the man of sorrows, something along those lines. And acquainted I mean, with grief. Acquainted with grief. Mm. And I feel like the Christianity that I was shaped by as a child didn't really have an appreciation for that. Mm. I think that um, there was a lot more of the make the best of it. and mm. So the fear is that there's like the fear or in there or the hesitation is that doing something wrong or not like championing team the team correctly or the way that we perceive ourselves needing to represent God or Jesus. Yes. I would say that that representing God or Jesus was a big heavy burden of my childhood. So what yeah. if we were to think about it as if we are to be able to embody this like I think about that word of acquainted with grief. Mm. Like that's a really different invitation. Phrase acquainted with grief. I tell you what, the people in my life that I've met that are acquainted with grief mm. are astounding humans. Mm. They didn't not they didn't get lost in it, but they're acquainted. They know how to be friends with grief. You know, to listen to it when it's speaking, it needs to be heard. And I, that's been a practice that's been slow for me to embrace in my life. Honestly, the last 10 years have been revolutionary within me. I, I wrote a draft of my memoir that my editor told me offered a lot of empathy and compassion to my missionary father, but almost none to my teenage self. 
And she said, well, why don't you just rewrite those chapters with empathy for your teenage missionary daughter self? And I was like, oh, I'm gonna get a therapist and get back to you. And I did. And so much of that work in therapy involved like so much snot and tears and like going to the edge of the abyss that I didn't know I was holding within me. But it was only in the becoming acquainted with the grief and moving through it and listening to it and letting it be a door that I walked through. That on the other side, oh, it's such a bigger world. And then there's that capacity to see in another, like, oh, you are also someone who has been acquainted with grief. I'll just sit with you. And you can share what you want to share. And even if you don't, we just know that we're side by side and the grief exists between us and within us, and it's not extinguishing us. It's this being human together. I love that. It's like you said, there's another really clear fear is that somehow that sorrow or that grief might extinguish us. And I think in some ways yeah. it's a really valid fear when some of the things we carry are so deeply, deeply, deeply painful. Absolutely. And I will say that I don't think grief is meant to be carried alone. Mm. I don't think it's meant to be processed alone. Mm. I think that being in the presence of a compassionate witness to our grief is essential because it is possible to get lost in there. Mm. I think I learned in a way that I hadn't fully, my own capacity for depression, for, for being weighted down. And, I, and I'm so grateful that I've learned how not to be alone in grief, how to reach for people that I trust, that I love, even when I'm feeling incredibly wobbly and uncertain. And that used to be something I never knew how to do. I thought I could only show up in people's lives when I was fully competent and cheerful and had something to offer. Mm. The, the thought of showing up with my, you know, my heartbroken felt terrifying, so vulnerable and raw. And now, like, how splendid. I have so many dear humans in my life that are acquainted with grief and I can show up with my heart broken mm. and we can weep or howl or yell or, you know, and then often there's laughter. Yes. Like yes. Almost all. <laughs> and I think this is a really important thing for us to talk about that grief and sorrow. It's, it's almost like at the beginning when you first started talking, I think there there is sometimes an assumption that it's it's going to only be one thing, but as you yeah. said, it can be rage or anger. It can be mm -hmm. deep sorrow and sadness that shows up with tears, and like you said, like the snot dripping out of your nose, mm -hmm. or it's like suddenly laughing at things that other people would be like, "How are they laughing about that?" That's <laughs> like so. I love that you've just in in this whole moment it feels like when we talk about lament lament isn't only one thing it's no all of these things yeah. that come through the admission of it and the attention to it and with the connection of others it's so broad and wide lament I, a few years ago uh well actually when my book came out 
suddenly sadness showed up in my life again in this way that completely surprised me. Like the only thing I could compare it to is like a postpartum experience, which I hadn't really experienced with my sons, but there it was with this book being birthed and out in the world and out having its own conversations that I wasn't privy to. And it was the best I could do. It was as beautiful as I could make it. And it's, I was still disappointed that it wasn't better, more beautiful, more powerful, but I had really poured everything I had to give to it. And there it was. And I, and I have so many practices in my life that are sustaining. There's yoga, there's meditation, there's laughter, there's prayer, there's friendship, there's dance, there's writing, there's journaling, there's creating beauty, picking up roadside flowers and making a bouquet out of them and maybe leaving it for a stranger. There's so many practices that fill me with joy. And yet I was doing all of them and the sadness was still with me. Like, and I finally, I was out for a walk and I thought, I keep trying to outrun her. What if she's trying to catch up with me to tell me something that I'm supposed to hear? What if she's a friend that has something wise to teach me? And so now there's this new added practice of like turning towards anger, despair, grief, sadness, whatever it is. And, and I've actually been writing these love songs to the imperfect, the imperfect usually being the imperfect parts of myself mm. that I'm trying to to love. And so these love songs to despair, love songs to sadness, love songs to wanting. And it's like I'm imagining that I'm turning and kneeling and getting close and saying, hi, welcome. What is it you're trying to tell me that I'm trying to ignore? And like, what are you afraid of? What do you need for comfort? Okay. And then there's usually more to the story, you know? This little voice is the beginning of a conversation, not the end. And I think sometimes I had felt like I needed to silence that voice <laughs> to get back to being happy, <laughs> productive and serving everyone. And it turns out these little voices have so much wisdom about a better way to be in the world and alive and responding to the people that come into my life. I think in hearing you say that too, I imagine that that feels really scary to some oh, people. Yeah. The, the becoming friends with some of these places in us that just feel terrifying. So what would you say are some of the things to remember in this practice? Like that opens us to lament, because um, yeah. I I I think there's a sense where you're like, yeah, they they lead us into being a better person, and I want to talk about that too. Mm. But I think it's that what what do we what could we hold on to and remember as we think about this practice of lament, because becoming warm and friendly towards those places in us that p potentially terrify us. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, what are things to remember in the practice in order to kind of keep us open to lament or open to grief and sorrow and the things that come out of lament and rage? I mean, I when I teach writing and I'm inviting students, inviting fellow writers to move towards their pain. Um, and what I usually say is like, look, pain is the one thing we all get. Every human on this earth gets pain. And this, I see it as three choices, what we do with it. Like we can turn it against ourselves, we can use it to punish and throttle and push down, or we can turn it against others. 
cruelty or rage or, well, we can transform it. We can create art with it. We can put it into our sport. We can put it into the love with which we live our lives. We can use the pain. And that process is really hard. It's not easy. Be so gentle with yourself. Use kind names when you talk to yourself. <laughs> I used such punishing names for myself a decade ago. So tenderness towards yourself is so elemental. And the, the don't do it alone. Like if you're really gonna go towards a deep pain, do it in support. A therapist can be an enormous resource. Someone that is skilled and trained as a facilitator to how to accompany you through grief and to the other side. Because it is hard sometimes to pull out. And then ideally let that community be wider than maybe a paid professional therapist. Find a few trusted folks in your life that you could say, hey, here's my vulnerability. And they could say, oh yeah, here's mine. Well, and it sounds like that's what you found with your Haitian friends. Like there's, and right. there's a sense of understanding with them. Mm -hmm. Like you have had this shared experience and not that there needs to be the exact same shared experience or, but it does seem mm. like there's a connection that you share with your Haitian friends that allows that to be deepened. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's it's wonderful to talk about a place we all love and all feel lament for. Mm. That helps, but it, it's by no means a requirement because I feel like I can talk about that with anyone that's acquainted with grief. Two books that I want to recommend. Great. Great. One is called The Wild Edge of Sorrow, Rituals of Renewal and the Sacred Work of Grief by mm. Francis Weller so much wisdom in this book. My sister gave it to me actually. Um, I'm gonna read two lines from it. Okay, so that one I read at the beginning, sorrow is a sustained song, I'm sorry, sustained note. Sorrow is a sustained note in the song of being alive. To be human is to know loss in its many forms. When we fully honor our many losses, our lives become more fully able to embody the wild joy that aches to leap from our hearts into the shimmering world. And another book that I found so life-changing is one called The Book of Forgiving by Desmond Tutu, beloved Archbishop and his daughter, Mpho Tutu. And they have ritual after ritual of how to practice the process of forgiving, which includes a lot of grief, a lot of lament. And I, one time I was at the coast for a week writing, I thought I was going to get all this writing done. And instead I just did the entire book, journaled every prompt, did every practice. And there was a time when I sat by the edge of the ocean with the scarf over my head and it was before COVID. So we weren't wearing a mask, but it would have been helpful too. Cause it was just so many tears, so much snot, so much grief. And I was lamenting all the harm that has been done in the name of Christendom and its interwovenness with colonization and desecration and obliteration. And just to release that grief felt so necessary. So that 
it makes it easier for me now to be with those whose families, whose histories have been broken by that and know that the grief that they feel is, a, is an echo or my grief is an echo of the grief that they feel. Because I, I too on my side feel the weight and sorrow of it. So I can accompany, I hope, I'm learning to accompany the sorrow of others. I do, I love the picture of you by the beach because the other day I was with a group of women and we decided that we would just, um, we had these this bonfire that we were doing and you know, in England, there's a tradition on Guy Fawkes, and we burn an effigy of Guy Fawkes. I mean, what? Let, can we talk can, about? Right, exactly. Um, so many problematic things related to that. But we decided instead of burning an effigy of Guy Fawkes, we'd burn something else, and it would symbolize the rage that we felt about the wrongs that had been done to us. Wow. And so we we stuffed this these things full of all these names and this these people that we felt had wronged us very significantly and then we we had them all in these bags and we burned them and then we found ourselves just yelling loudly some of their names and there's something so cathartic about giving Mm -hmm. ourselves permission to be angry about the wrongs that had been done to us and then there was something so lovely about hearing another woman say a name and then we just all yell that name and like kind of spit in the fire and I think there is something so fabulous about letting it go, whether it's letting it go into the ocean, letting it go onto the sand, letting it go into this fire. Yes. It's almost like an unburdening. The, oh, yes. And it's, you have to wait. It took me a long time to get to a place where it felt like I was ready to do that unburdening because the story had to be told to myself over and over and over again that these are things that had been done that were wrong. So really to get clear about it and then in that clarity to then share that space with these other women and yeah it was crazy how um, how that experience really did physically feel like I let something go. Mm -hmm. It just made me think of it as you were talking about that moment by the ocean you'd spent this time with this um these practices that Desmond Tutu and his daughter mm-hmm. and then that I don't know something about a visual picture of mm-hmm. being I by the ocean ritual. and letting it go ritual can be so important I mean we are embodied beings we we literally carry grief and sorrow and hurt and trauma in the cells of our body yes. and and the releasing of it comes also through our body releasing that yeah so maybe as we close apricot and i'm kind of putting you on the spot here but what is there a ritual we can do what can we do in this moment as we because mm. maybe as people are listening they're thinking of their own griefs and sorrows or others or ones they haven't been able to attune to or like, right. what is is there a ritual that you and i can do just to mm. I woke up, I knew we were going to have this conversation. I woke up yesterday at 4.30 in the morning with lines of a poem going through my head that I wrote down. And I don't know that it's a ritual necessarily, but it has elements of a ritual in it. Great. Can I read it? And then please. 
And I think that I think that ritual needs to be deeply personal. Yes, that's. I think mm. those of us that need something, a signpost, need to be the ones really thinking and holding mm. what that should look like. That's a. Very, and I think the ritual so that you choose needs to be one that you feel safe with. If it feels like, ah, this puts me on edge, that's not the right ritual for you right now. Mm. So I feel really hesitant to offer a ritual, not knowing if it would be an exact fit for how many people. Mm. But I think really trust yourself with creating the ritual mm. and be adventurous. I mean, I remember once talking with you about someone that had experienced enormous grief and they had a ritual of getting a bunch of plates from Goodwill and going and smashing them. And there's grief and anger in it. And it's so beautiful, the release of that. Well, I'd love for you to read your poem and then we're... Okay. And then we're gone on too long. Gone on oh. a bit long <laughs> Oh, no, no, no. Not too long. <laughs> Never have too long talking about sorrow. I mean, come on now. <laughs> Perfect. Hurry, that stuff is too good. All right. <clears throat> Every loss is an invitation, a door flung open through which sorrow storms singing. Her voice, sometimes a howl, sometimes a whisper. Let it shake you. Let it unmoor you. Let grief yank everything you love from your shaking arms until the sorrow itself enfolds you, coursing through your bloodstream, scouring away what you once believed to be enduring. Feel it all, the anger, the desolation, the slow trapped in amber weightlessness, and then, dear heart, place your hand on your chest and feel that you are still here, still breathing. When you gather yourself finally to cross that door flung open, that threshold, do not do it alone. Carry with you like a resplendent cloak around your shoulders, your sorrow, your joy, your questions, your uncertainties. When you walk through that doorway of loss, let sorrow sing you across. Let joy strew flowers at your feet. Dance if you have the strength left. Hands held wide, a love song to your broken, beating, bursting heart. Thank you. Thank you. It's a delight to talk to you. Thank you for joining us today for this conversation. I hope you find ways to lament and join others in the places where they also hold lament. Next week, we'll be joined by Dr. Olivia Scott. She cares deeply about people systems and pressing into complexity in ways that seek to name and work toward justice and she does so with dignity joy and humility she'll be talking to us about the practice of justice i hope you'll join us 